Hello and greetings. Thank you for your interest in spiritual matters. My name's Ethan Long Henry, and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples on the west side of Los Angeles. Paul wrote to the Colossian Christians, Colossians, the second chapter, beginning in verse 6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Paul writes these Colossian Christians somewhere between the years 59 and 60, from prison when he's in Caesarea. We see this at the beginning of the letter. Colossae is a city in the Roman province of Asia. He didn't preach in Colossae. We're told in Colossians 1.6 and chapter 2 and verse 1 and chapter 4 that Epaphras actually did the work of evangelism there. And we know that the letter cannot date much later than this because the city was destroyed by a massive earthquake in the year 61 and it was never really rebuilt. Previously in the letter, Paul had commended the Colossians and their hope in his prayer, and he prayed for them to be filled with the knowledge of God's will, to walk worthily of the Lord, to bear fruit, and to thank God in Christ. In the beginning of Colossians 1, 1 through 1-12, he maintained an extensive discourse about how God has worked in Jesus, and Jesus' standing, authority, and nature, in chapter 1, verses 13-20. through 20. Then he begins to speak of their salvation, if they remain the gospel that they had heard, and he speaks of the work he has done in his ministry at the end of Colossians chapter 1. Earlier in chapter 5, he spoke about his agona, his striving, his wrestling, his anxiety. We see the word agony in there. Uh, for these Christians in Colossae, and also those in Laodicea, so they may know the mystery that exists in God in Christ, that he is a true treasure of wisdom, that they should not be deceived by flattering speech. And so in our passage we've just read in Colossians 2, 6 through 10, he's addressing his dual concern for these Colossian Christians. He wants them to walk in Christ as they received him, to be rooted and built up in him, to be established in faith, to abound in thanksgiving, because in Jesus the fullness of divinity, the Theotetos, dwells in bodily form. And he is the head of the Arches, the principalities and rule and exousius, or power and authorities, and the Colossians are filled in him. But he also warns them to watch, lest anyone attempt to come and make spoil of them by means of philosophy, kenes apates, which we call vain or empty deceit, according to the human traditions, to the stoicheia, the elements or rudiments of the universe, not after Christ. Now he will continue in chapter 2 to speak of how the Colossians were redeemed in Christ, and he seems to be warning them about what we would call both Judaizing and proto-Gnostic teachings in verses 11 through 23. And so in Colossians, the beginning of chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, particularly in verse 8, Paul is very concerned that these Christians might fall prey to teachers who promoted some other different message in the gospel, one that's not rooted in Christ, but one that would make complete sense in philosophy and sophistical deceit that is established based on human understanding and traditions and claims about the basic elements of the universe. Now, trying to ascertain this in any more specific form is not very easy. From what he will continue to talk about in terms of asceticism and things of that sort, it would seem he's concerned about some kind of Gnostic teachers. But Gnosticism, uh, even in its incipient forms, don't seem to be a big influence for another 20 to 30 years. 
Now, the building blocks of Gnosticism were already present because the Greco-Roman world was infatuated with philosophy and sophistry. And so even if the Colossians are not directly associated with Gnosticism, it hasn't happened yet, we wouldn't be terribly surprised to find out that there might be some danger that they would be seduced by human philosophy to accept things as truth, not because it's rooted in Christ, but because it's something that's consistent with the things they had been taught before as good Greeks. And to this end, we do well to consider that danger, both the specific danger that comes from the Greek philosophy and how that has come down to us to this very day. Because whether uh, we're aware of it or not, for better and for worse, the Western world has been profoundly shaped by Greek civilization. In a lot of ways, 2,500 years later, we're still looking back to Athens for direction. We still have the Olympics. In fact, as I'm speaking in Rio de Janeiro, the 2016 Olympics are taking place. Our various political systems are all modeled on Greek antecedents. Uh, in fact, the um, concept of our mixed government incorporates part of the, the uh, idea of an ecclesia or a political assembly. It includes part of the idea of a, of a solitary executive and of a trial by jury. All came out of Greece. Now, what is philosophy? Philosophy, the words philosophos, or love of wisdom. Now, in our modern parlance, we talk about philosophy primarily in terms of the study of knowledge, reality, and existence in general. And also, in terms of specific fields, the general uh, the beliefs and assumptions and theoretical underpinnings that uh, allow it to continue. So we see a lot in terms of epistemology, how we know what we know, how we can know anything about reality, or at least what we think we know, and therefore about ethics and how we should live. Uh, it may seem remote, but anybody who's got a PhD technically has a doctor of philosophy in their field. That's what the PH is, is philosophy there. And the idea is that somebody who has a PhD is somebody who has deeply explored their study, not only of the field itself, but also how that field thinks it knows what it knows, and some more theoretical work in that field. And yet, in ancient Greece, philosophy was actually far broader. It encompassed the whole range of what can be known. It really was a study of everything. So Socrates, for instance, could focus on the good and the just to attempt to understand what those ideals and characteristics meant, while Aristotle would attempt to make sense of the natural world and draw out its implications for how one would live. And both of these were subsumed in the realm of philosophy. We need to remember that at that time, the range of knowledge regarding the universe was far, far more restricted than what we know today. And therefore, a person could be acquainted with astronomy, biology, ethics, morality, sociology, history, mathematics, physics, and other fields of study, and be able to draw a conclusion regarding pretty much all that was known about those matters. The term Renaissance men of, of a later age, uh, people acquainted with all fields of study. Likewise, the Greeks had a very holistic and interconnected understanding of various disciplines. Physics and metaphysics were all part of one universe, and they didn't necessarily put them all into strict categories. Only as individual fields expanded, especially in the past 250 years, that they become specific disciplines. What we need to remember, whoever we are, is that... It, those who have been deeply influenced by Western civilization, which would be everybody in the Western world, Europe, even the Middle East, and the Ameri and Western civilization in the Americas, have patterned their approach to the world according to the Greek views of philosophy. 
And what do we mean by that? Well, we got to remember, first of all, the Greek philosophy is not some kind of coherent single school, but a host of different ideologies. It's not as if all people uh, simultaneously affirmed everything that could be affirmed about philosophy. But we talk about the approach of philosophy. Since 500 years before Jesus, people in the Western world have taken it for granted that we should approach the universe and the quest of knowledge about it according to the presuppositions of philosophical inquiry, that we can study and come to know things. Today, we think we've honed that system because of the scientific method. But then we blew it all up because of the questions of Kant and others about how we can know what we know. But even modern rationalism, and even postmodernism for all of its critiques, still function on the same philosophical basis as the ancient philosophies. And in fact, as we begin to explore Greek philosophical schools, we'll be able to see that there's many points of, of connection, that it can be argued fairly coherently that the Greeks established the range of questions that philosophy would seek to explore. And, and whereas in certain ways we may have advanced uh, certain forms of knowledge and certain understandings, we're still dealing with the primary conceptions as originally charted out uh, between 22 and 2500 years ago. So we have a whole host of Greek philosophical schools regarding which we can consider. Uh, much of this information will be available on, on the website where, where you could have found this, uh, this sermon and this discussion, and hopefully that the sheet will provide uh, the information will be beneficial for you. We begin with the pre-Socratics. They're called the pre-Socratics because they came before Socrates. And they're the ones who really established philosophy. And they're really interested primarily in the natural explanation for things. Uh, now, their schools would not carry on, but uh, all of their ideas would influence the people who came after them. And they come from the 6th and 5th centuries before Jesus. We begin with the cult, so-called Milesian school, Thales and Anaximenes. And they're trying to figure out which of the four primeval elements, air, earth, fire, and water, was primary. Uh, another one, Anaximander, attempted to figure out how differentiated things came to be from the one. Pythagoras. We've all remember the Pythagorean theorem and stuff like that from math, right? Well, Pythagoras of that fame wanted to demonstrate that the universe was part perfectly harmonious based on numbers and math. And all the talk about the spheres and things of that nature. Heraclitus believed that all things were in flux. If you ever heard that idea that you never step in the same river twice, it came from Heraclitus. Now, he called the pattern or structure that maintained this flux, this constant movement, the logos, which will prove very important as we continue. Parmenides believed that there was actually one, one unchanging existence, and he rooted in the idea of God as the ultimate unity from Xenophanes of Cologne. And this is the Eleatic school that would be very influential uh, for following. Empedocles believed in unity of substance, kind of like the Eleatics, but he believed them to be manifest in those four primeval elements. Leucippus and Democritus came up with a theory of atoms, small individual bodies of different shape but similar in form that collided and formed various things in which were the basis of everything. We still have atomic theory to this day. There were the sophists. We talked about sophistical and things beforehand and sophistry. What are we talking about? Well, sophos is wisdom. But the sophists were not a philosophical school per se, but they were professional educators in rhetoric. And they believed that thought was based on individual impression. Something that you believe, something that you felt. And it did not have any deep relationship with reality. 
And it was really the origin of relativism, something that Socrates and Platonic dialogues would deeply chastise and was seen to be extremely detrimental to the whole pursuit of knowledge. Because if words mean nothing, and if you try to just establish whatever you want to be that has no relation to what actually is, it can be very dangerous. And again, I could be reading from political headlines today with these things to show you how not far we've come in 2,500 years. We've been talking about pre-Socratics, but ironically, even Socrates must go here. Because even though he is the best-known Greek philosopher, we don't really have anything directly from him. Everything we know about him comes from Plato and Xenophon. And especially with Platonic dialogues, it's extremely hard to know where Socrates ends and Plato begins. But we can see from all the things said about him that Socrates was very interested in ethics and the core moral concepts of the good and the just. And, of course, Plato is his most famous pupil. And Plato, uh, among many things that he discussed and many influences, is primarily known for his concept of platonic realism within the theory of forms. The form would be the ideal of any given abstract or concrete concept. It's the archetype. And so the idea is there is the, uh, the form of a table, the form of the good, the form of courage, the form of justice. And everything in reality are just imperfect replications of that ideal form. Everything from uh, the chair to lofty ideals of metaphysics like the good and the just. Because of this, Platonism is very pessimistic about the view of everything physical, because the physical is the corrupted or the less-than-ideal manifestation of the form. And this is why there was yearned for spiritual release to be in the ideal in Platonism. Perhaps we can best exemplify Platonism with the famous allegory of the cave, in which Plato speaks of a cave where people are sitting and they're watching shadows on the wall. The shadows are things going on in reality outside and the people are content to watch the shadows. Some people may start wondering what's going on and would turn and leave the cave. Uh, they have to, they're blinded by the light and it takes time for them to come to grips with that light and to see things for the way they really are. Some people, when confronted by the light, return back to the cave and are willing to see things in terms of just the shadows. Uh, while the precious select few, that is the philosophers, are willing to look at things the way they are, to adjust their eyes to the light, and to see real truth. Platonism would develop throughout what we call the classical age of the Greco-Roman world. Ultimately, there's the form of Middle Platonism, where different things that emphasized. It leads to Neoplatonism in late antiquity. And, late in, 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 and Neoplatonism focuses on the one, called the Prime Mover, and how all reality derives from him, especially the first emanation of the prime mover, the demiurge. And this is very easily appropriated for the father and the son. And the son becomes emanation of the, of the father. And in reality, a lot of what would pass for Christian philosophy at the end of the Roman time and into uh, the medieval era is really derived from Neoplatonism. We can talk about the peripatetic school, those walking around. It comes from Aristotle, who's pupil, Plato's pupil. Aristotle didn't think much of the doctrine of the forms, and he instead focused on what could be learned through scientific inquiry. It's from Aristotle that we have the study of logic. He wrote down the first systematic treatises of logic, and they remain the basis of that to this day. He established, he wanted to establish all things, excuse me, through induction, which were conclusions that were based on the accumulation of facts. 
To Aristotle, there was the unmoved mover, the one who compelled all other things to move and change, that everything was made out of matter. That soul was really life force. The soul has conceptions, reasons about them, and from them obtains knowledge about what is actually true. The ultimate goal is not unity with the good and the ideal, but in happiness derived from virtue. That virtue is not rooted in knowledge, like Plato would say, but in balancing natural impulses. Aristotle is rightly seen as the father of physical science. He's given credence in the ancient world, even though his school was not prominent. In fact, it was a rediscovery of Aristotle in the 11th, 12th centuries that would lead to what we call scholasticism. And, uh, and uh, Thomas Aquinas and guys like him. That would also lead to the challenge of nominalism that, uh, according to prominent theories, would, would really blow up the ancient medieval consensus about uh, that had been marrying Christianity with Greek philosophy and prompted the reassessments that would lead to the modern world and the, and the modern view of things. Another school is called cynicism. We talk about cynics and we think about them as people who think poorly about things. Uh, but cynicism comes from dogs. And the reason it's, they're called cynics, and it starts from Antisthenes, who was a pupil of Socrates, but more famously from Diogenes, because they lived like dogs. They lived simple lives, uh, begging from people and living on the street. And they thought that this uh, would mean that people were living in accord with nature according to human reason. They called it eudaimonia. Uh, and it, eudaimonia is dependent on self-sufficiency, virtue, uh, clear speaking, a love of humanity, and indifference to the happenstance of life. Now, you can only achieve eudaimonia by practicing asceticism, by renouncing things. And when you renounce things, you can recognize that the things you've renounced, wealth, fame, power, things like that, are corrupt and they're not really necessary. And this idea of clear speaking leads to complete indifference to societal norms through the practice of shamelessness. Acting in shameless ways, speaking in shameless ways. And to the cynics, virtue is all that is necessary for happiness. And they went around as people without property. They were homeless. They were begging from others. Uh, Okay, you can probably see, you know, hippie movements and things like that, but also very influential in the Christian monastic movement that developed in the early medieval period. Another school of skepticism, which we see primarily from Piero of Ellis, and it established that we can know nothing for absolutely certain. Now, Piero had visited India and interacted with many number of gymnosophists who were naked wise men, probably Hindu yogis. This philosophy was later explicated by Sextus Empiricus. But Sextus Empiricus, as the name can see, is an empiricist. And so he's trying to bring in confidence in knowledge outside the self. So uh, Sextus Empiricus recognizes, as, as, as Piero had said, that indeed our senses are easily deceived. And our reasoning capability are very easily tilted toward what we want. And therefore, we cannot have absolute confidence in anything that we believe to be true. And so you need to establish some kind of objective check uh, that you can test things to see if they're really true, which is the empirical influence of that. Of course, you can see how prominent that is as a, philosophy, as a prevailing philosophy, both skepticism and empiricism. Uh, the quest for that uh, really defined Descartes and others. Epicureanism. Epicureanism we hear about because of Acts 17, Paul reasons with Epicurean philosophers, and it comes from Epicurus. And he's working out the consequences of the atomic materialism suggested by Leucippus and Democritus. Epicurus was not an atheist. He believed that gods existed, but he felt that they were uninvolved in human affairs. They lived in what he called the state of tranquility, without worry, and that's what humans should strive for. Now, it is true that in Epicureanism, pleasure was the ultimate goal. That you could satisfy the pleasures of the body, 
but we tend to have a caricature about it. That Epicurus would said that the pleasures of the soul are superior to the pleasures of the body. And that if you're really going to enjoy the pleasures of the soul, you're going to attempt to give up the pleasures of the body and to live without pain. That the real goal in life was to seek freedom from fear, which would lead to tranquility, and freedom from pain. And so the ethic was to strive for happiness according to justice. Do as you will, but harm no one. In fact, there was a quote that was famous that was populated among uh, Epicureans. Don't fear God, don't worry about death. What is good is easy to get, and what is terrible is easy to endure. And so Epicureanism has pretty much been wholesale adopted as the philosophies of our day, with a little bit of uh, skepticism and uh, empiricism thrown in. Uh, and, and also... It's, a touch of utilitarianism. Uh, people today parade this as if it's something new and different, but really it's just the same thing that existed 2,400 years ago. The Greeks were just wise enough to recognize that it wasn't the only way of looking at things. And then, uh, for our purposes, the last one we'll talk about is Stoicism. Uh, it comes from Zeno of Sidium. Uh, he spoke on the Stoa, which led to Stoicism. And it suggested ethics as a primary emphasis of knowledge and the development of self-control and courage to overcome destructive emotions. Stoicism proved very popular among the Romans and also a good number of Christians throughout the ages. And it's a belief in the ability to come to an objective understanding of universal reason, which is called the Logos. Now, this Logos is also known as fate. It believed the universe was material, and it was actually made of reasoning substance. But that all things were subject to the laws of Logos, and it was very highly deterministic. That even the gods were all subject to it, and you couldn't escape it. And therefore, ethic was intrinsic to the soul, and it must be developed into virtue. Virtue was will in accordance with nature, to accept one's lot in life, and to pursue excellence in it. And the four virtues were wisdom, courage, justice, and temperance. And so there was this, this idea to this day, Stoicism, of being very uh, control of one's emotions, that life is going to be what life's going to be, and you just accept it with, with uh, justice and with uh, courage and wisdom. Uh, you don't go in excess about anything. And uh, whatever happens to you, just what's been fated for you, and just take it like a man, so to speak. And that's... Uh, and, and you can see where that the, the moralism part could feature into Christianity and... A lot of people can become Stoic by uh, in, in reductionist terms. It would also lead to classical pantheism, something Spinoza was a fan of in the early modern era. Now, these are the major schools of thought. There's a lot of other things going on. Of them, Platonism and Aristotelianism would really set the groundwork and really support the rest. But Epicureanism, Skepticism, and Stoicism were the primary schools that existed in Roman times during the days of Jesus and Paul. Now, having said all that, it's important to note that the Greek philosophical system has always been in tension with the Hebraic confidence in God's revelation. A question, Tertullian's question that he speaks out has really rung out ever since Alexander the Great conquered the land of Israel. What hath Athens to do with Jerusalem? Hellenism, which was the synthesis of Greek theology, philosophy, and lifestyle, including much of the philosophy that we discussed, was dogmatically promoted throughout the ancient Near East in the days of the Greeks and Romans in a way that we, was not seen beforehand. And it's important to kind of keep in mind that, that 
even though they were under empire and there were certain things on the ground that had changed, in a lot of ways, life for the Israelite in the middle of the 4th century BC did not differ substantially in terms of ideology from uh, his first temple ancestor of 600, 500, 600 years earlier. Each nation had its own gods, and everybody respected the gods of others. Their cultures maintained their distinctiveness. Now, the fact that Assyrians and Babylonians practiced exile shook up that synthesis to some degree. Uh, but it's interesting to note how the Persians returned things to the status quo. So sure, there may not have been true Philistines anymore. Uh, sure, the kingdom of Israel had been cast out and Samaritans put in their place. Uh, but for everybody who didn't have to go through the fun of exile, uh, they had their land, they had their own gods, and they were doing things in very similar ways that they would have done it earlier in the Iron Age. The astonishing thing is that with, by the time of Jesus... Most all of those cultures had syncretized. They had associated their native divinities with their Greek counterparts and had absorbed many Greek or further East Parthian Sasanian practices. And this was something true of almost all the pagans except for the Jews. All the other cultures had accommodated and assimilated to Hellenism. The Jews, to a st strong degree, withstood that assimilation, although some influence was bound to take place. This is why. The Jews experienced existential crisis at the wrath of Antiochus IV in 167 before Jesus. He wanted his empire to all from Hellenistic culture, and the Jews refused to do that. And the story of their resistance is seen in First and Second Maccabees. And yet, even then, a lot of Jews found the philosophy of the Greek seductive. Uh, Philo of Alexandria is famous for how he adhered to Platonism and gave a Platonic spin to the Old Testament. But many Jewish people continued to hold out against full assimilation to Hellenistic culture and philosophy. And we know from Paul in Colossians 2.8 where Jesus and the Apostles stood about that. In fact, we know from Acts 17 that Paul was not ignorant of Greek philosophy. He was able to reason with the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. He was able to speak uh, to the Greeks there in Athens, quote their own people, uh, and have a conversation about them and knew where they were at. He knows about it, but he holds it at arm's length. Because he expects Christians to be rooted and grounded in Christ and not in the philosophy and vain deceit that is based in human tradition and the elements of the universe. But let's go back to Tertullian's question. What had Athens to do with Jerusalem? Why would he have to ask that? He asked to ask it a hundred years after the end of the Apostles because many influential Christians were seduced by Greek philosophy. Justin Martyr had been a Platonist before he came to Jesus. He considered Christianity to be the true philosophy. So whereas he may not have assimilated his Christianity into uh, other philosophical schools, he nevertheless sees it in terms of philosophy. Not long after, in early, a slightly earlier contemporary Tertullian, Clement of Alexandria was not only a Platonist, but went so far as to say in the Stromata that God gave philosophy to the Greeks as he had given the law to Moses. It got to the point where Augustine spent his part of his life as a Neoplatonist. And one of the only ways we can actually make sense of his understanding of God's sovereignty is to be understood that it's the Neoplatonic conception of God as absolute much more than anything we see revealed about uh, the God of Israel in the, in the Old and New Testaments. 
In a book called The Theological Origins of Modernity, philosopher and teacher Michael Allen Gillespie argued that early Christians developed a coherent understanding of the created order based upon an uneasy synthesis excuse me, between biblical revelation and Greek philosophy, especially Platonism. And that held up. It even withstood the discovery of Aristotle and reassessment, but with nominalism uh, just at the time of Thomas Aquinas and afterward, and grappling with the challenges of nominalism, uh, that's when the early modern world was born out of attempting to grapple with that, and attempts to do so through hardened theology like the Reformers, through uh, hu the humanism of, of the early Renaissance, or of mystical ways. It's easy to argue that Judaism and Christianity needed philosophical scaffolding that the Greeks could afford, especially that from Platonism. And it is likely that our faith and perspective as Western Christians has been so thoroughly saturating Greek philosophy that we would not be able to thoroughly disassociate the two. And it might well be that many some of the elements of Greek philosophy do help us make sense of the world because they are true because of how God has ordered the world. Nevertheless, on many crucial issues of the faith, flashpoints of doctrinal disagreement for 2,000 years, looking at faith as a life vocation versus a set of ideas, the nature and value of the creation and the body versus the spirit, the nature of the soul, the idea of the apostle or the expert, how are we going to ascertain what is true, God's sovereignty and man's freedom and things like that, the leavening agent, that has allowed for the spread of error and distortion of the gospel is rooted in this Greek philosophy. And so, when we investigate philosophy, we have to do that with open eyes. To recognize that in Christ, philosophy is not inherently good, and that we're easily seduced and deceived into believing things that seem true, because it seems to go along with the way the world works, but it's based in human traditions. It's based on elemental aspects of the world, not rooted in Christ. As we talked about all of those various forms of Greek philosophy, there's a lot of elements of them that can be aligned with the truth of God in Christ, or it would be amenable to it. On the other hand, all of them are rooted in, in a kind of perspective that is worldly without a, a full understanding of the nature of the divine, and not one of them fully embodies the truth of God in Christ, and they all prove deficient in many ways. Now this message that Paul has reverberates in Colossians 2.8 because his concerns then are no less valid today. Because our world remains saturated with philosophy, vain deceits according to human tradition, the elements of the universe. This might all seem arcane and strange, but do not be deceived. Everybody has some sort of philosophy. We all have certain ideas about what we know and how we know it. We may not have thought about it thoroughly. We have not maybe deliberated upon it. We may not be aware of the influence that have led us to understand it, but it's there. That web of fundamental assumptions and beliefs that we maintain about the world and how it works and what we know about it is our worldview. And every worldview is governed by its own philosophical concepts. And in Colossians 2, 1 through 10, it's very clear that we're supposed to root all of that in Christ. That our faith is supposed to be in Him. In John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That is the completion of those things. What is true is going to accord with, be in accord with him. And therefore, we're to look to Jesus to understand what we can know and how we can know it. We look to Jesus to pattern our thoughts and feelings and actions, and even how we think according to him. Well and good, most of us who are in Christ will recognize that, but we all have come out from the world. 
or are easily seduced by the world and its prevailing philosophies. And we speak about modern rationalism and postmodernism. We can speak of scientism, but really all these things derive from various elements of Greek philosophy. We see the influence of skepticism in full flower, but very inconsistently applied. How many people doubt their doubts? And how much skepticism expresses the things we want to be true versus the things that we don't want to be true? So many are infatuated with what we can understand through scientific processes to believe that science has even supplanted philosophy. Uh, many prominent scientists have said that philosophy is now irrelevant, which is so completely unaware and naive, not realizing that everything they think they know based on science is based upon certain things they take for granted as how you can understand things are true based upon the elemental aspects of the world. And seem completely oblivious to the fact that why they think that comes from Epicurus and Aristotle. Think about the self-help community and the mythology of America. That's just stoicism in a different form. The idea that virtue can be mastered if you just work hard enough. And yet we have this obsession and with and hatred of the body. We fear death. We in that and we want ideals. We, we want everything to be perfect. And that goes back to Plato and the forms. Deconstructionism. That's rooted in skepticism. Existentialism, that's anticipated 3,000 years earlier, even before Greek philosophy and Ecclesiastes, and also, in a sense, by the cynics. Avoiding pain, right from the Epicureans. In reality, the preacher is right in Ecclesiastes 1 and verse 9, there is nothing new under the sun. Everything that is, has been before. Everywhere we turn, we find some philosophy that's really ruined all these ancient questions and systems. And they all do exactly what Paul's warning about. They seek to try to make sense of things according to human traditions of thinking in reference to the basic elements of the world. They're very seductive because it seems to make sense of certain things, but it's not rooted in Christ. So we need to recognize those sources of influence and take heed lest we fall for them. It's, it's very true that there might be many ways in which Greek philosophy has proven valuable to round out and understand the universe. But it's not good that early Christians wholeheartedly embrace Greek philosophies. Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, and the rest may have come upon some elements of truth. That's because God made them in his image and made a creation that manifests truths and is understandable. But they're not Christians, they were not Jews, and we cannot baptize their philosophies fully. All philosophy since is dependent upon them, and thus all philosophies suffer from the same categorical difficulties. Whatever is true about them is true because it is true in Christ, but none of them live up to Christ. Now, time would fail us if we were going to point out all the failings of Christians and churches because they accepted philosophical dogmas not rooted in Christ. In fact, almost all error and false teaching have come either because of a misguided attempt to embrace uh, things from the Old Testament and impose them upon the New or because of various thoughts and ideas from Greek philosophy and its children. Everything from the denial of the resurrection in, into the ideas of Christian scientists. Time and time again, these things are the fountain of air, and they're pernicious because they're just embedded in Western civilization, and so every generation anew must grapple with them. We must not accept substitutes. 
we must be rooted in Christ and established in our faith in Him. So indeed, Paul perceived the dangers Christians would face from philosophy and vain deceit, rooted in human tradition and the elements of the world. Greek philosophies in his day were mighty, and he and his fellow Jews and Christians were about the only ones who stood up against it. Greek philosophy would ultimately shape and define much about Christianity, some possibly for good, but a lot for ill. And to this day, too many reject the Lord or fall away from him because they have looked to human ways of doing things and human understanding of the basic principles of the world and turn away from the truth of God that he has revealed in Christ. And that is why we must be wary of the philosophies of the world and instead remain rooted in Christ. We're again thankful that you've joined us and we hope that you've been encouraged by this. We've discussed the things we should not do in this lesson. Uh, we encourage you to consider rooted and edified in Christ as we continue to look at the rest of what Paul has to say in Colossians 2, 6 through 10, and also to consider the necessity of a biblical worldview. There are other discussions that you can find. Uh, you maybe like to learn more about uh, Venice Church of Christ, uh, or you'd like to meet with us, or take a Bible correspondence course, or like to study the Bible, have a prayer request, any way we can be of service, please uh, find us online at VeniceChurchOfChrist.org. You can also find us on various forms of social media. You can also get a hold of me personally on my website at deverbovitae.com. That's www.deverbovitae.com. We again thank you. Have a great day.